We've been in the book of Mark, if you are our guest this morning. We've been going through Mark's gospel, passages by passages, sections by sections. and I hope you've been tracking with us. This has been tremendous fun looking into this book. I say fun because when you dig deeper into the passages, there's so much richness in the words that Mark writes down. So much revelation that we can get out of the scriptures. And so my purpose this morning is to advance us in our series and at the same time prepare our hearts for Good Friday and for Easter. And so this morning we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 11 to the end of 12. And Mark's gospel sort of presents this to us as three days, three consecutive days. And scholars believe that the Passion Week, as it is known, Uh, took place in March of A.D. 33. And so we are going to continue. My my sermon title this morning, utilizing as the main title, The Servant King, is Three Days in Jerusalem. Three Days in Jerusalem. This morning we're going to join Jesus right as he is entering into Jerusalem. We're going to look at Literally, as Jesus is riding in on a donkey, we're going to be at Mark chapter 11. The very first picture we have of Jesus on this day is Mark 11, verse 1 to 11 is day 1. And we read this verse on the screen behind me. It says, then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest. I want to leave that up for a moment, if we can go back. Allow me to to set a scene for you, because we have Jesus on a donkey, and people are shouting things at him. Now, a moment ago I said there's so much richness in the text, and I literally could preach this morning for like four or five hours, but I will not because we have a a meeting after. That is the only reason why I'm not. I promise you, that's the only reason why. And so I'm I want to set this scene for you because we have Jesus on this donkey that isn't his. The video we just showed said it was a borrowed donkey. Not only was it a borrowed donkey, it was a donkey that had never been ridden before. I've never ridden a horse or in any animal, really. Um, I tried to ride a dog once, but that's a weird story. And I'm not going to try. I'm not going to. No, it's not going to tell that this morning. But there's significance in the fact that Jesus rides in comfortably, I might add, on a donkey that's never been ridden before. I believe it was in Genesis that God told Adam to have dominion over all the earth. And here Jesus is riding on a donkey that's never been ridden before, and he's riding it comfortably as though he has dominion over this donkey. It's very interesting that the second Adam, as we will find out, is able to control the animals. We've seen before he's able to control the winds and the waves. Jesus has dominion over everything. So Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, 
and it's the Passover season, and Jerusalem had a, a, a population of about 40,000 people. I guess close to Stouffville. Is that how many people are in Stouffville? More or less. But at this time of the year, it would balloon maybe four or five times that. What is four times 40,000? This was a point someone was just going to yell it out for me. Thank you. 160,000 people. In a small area. Jerusalem isn't that big. And all eyes are on Jesus. Hmm. This isn't the first time that, that Jesus has been in Jer- Jerusalem before. No, he'd been there many times. But this time would be different. This time was not going to be like the other times before. And as we'll see later, Jesus would leave Jerusalem at the end of each day and come back. And every day would present something different. And so here we are on day one. Now, different versions of the text will say Hosanna. And the meaning of the word Hosanna is save us now. It means save us now. And this comes direct from Psalm 118 when they chanted Hosanna, save us now, is what, that, is what it says in Psalm, and it means Hosanna. So Jesus is riding in on a donkey. People are shouting Hosanna. And they're laying their clothes down on the ground. There's a lot being said there. You see, in the Old Testament, when a, a ruler wanted to present himself as a man of peace, he would ride in on a donkey. If he wanted to present himself as a mighty warrior, he would ride in on a horse. But here he's riding in on a donkey. When the people wanted to crown a king, they would place their clothes on the ground. And the people are doing so here. This is a coronation ceremony. This is what it is. But it's not the usual coronation ceremony. Mm. No, it is not. Because the people thought that they were crowning a mighty king who was going to come and rescue them from the Romans and rescue them from the oppression of the Romans. But no, no, no. Jesus has far greater plans than that. He's coming to rescue them from the oppression of sin. He's coming to rescue them from the oppression of sickness. He's coming to give them eternal life. He's coming to be their Messiah. He's coming to be their Savior. He is the only one who can deliver them from that. Not from their physical oppression, but from their spiritual oppression. They also say, Hosanna in the highest. And that means, oh, you who live in heaven, save us now. Because they recognize who Jesus is, they just don't recognize his mission. They don't recognize his mission yet. So what is Jesus doing here? The people, they yell, Hosanna in the highest. Oh, you who live in heaven, save us now. You know what Jesus is doing here is he's fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling prophecy here. As it says in Zechariah 9. It says this, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. 
He's fulfilling some prophecy here. You know what else? I, I didn't, I, it's not on the screen, but when you read Zechariah 9, verse 10, it says that Jesus came to bring peace to all nations. Our current world needs some peace. Jesus, he comes to Jerusalem on an unbroken donkey, an unbroken colt. He's recognized as the Messiah in his so-called triumphal entry. Some of your Bibles, it will have the triumphal entry as a heading. But the nature of what Jesus came to do, they did not understand. He came not as a military king, but as the ultimate Passover lamb. It is the Passover season, and here he comes. On the very day or very weak, which lambs were selected for the Passover. The suffering servant, as he's, all, he's known, is about to give his life as a ransom for all. But Palm Sunday is supposed to be a joyous day. The people are waving branches. They're shouting, Hosanna, so I want to try this exercise with you. Oh, you know what? You guys are already split up into teams. This is perfect. So, I'm going to point to this side. You guys are going to shout Hosanna. Then I'm going to point to this side. You guys are going to shout Hosanna. Then I'm going to point to this side, and you guys are going to shout Hosanna. Is that okay? Can we do that this morning? All right. Here we go. Ready? All right. Listen, guys. Need a little bit more enthusiasm from some of you. All right. All right. So I'm going to try this again. This time I want you to yell Hosanna in the highest, though. All right? So you got to take a deep breath. All right? Here we go. Ready? I think Pastor Jeff's team wins. <laughs> again. <laughs> oh, man. Again and again, we see the same thing happening in this, this, this day. Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah, but in such a way to show the people that their ideas of the Messiah was misguided. They wanted a king, a warrior, but he came as a lowly servant. They wanted a conqueror who would shatter their enemies, but he came not with swords. He came with love and truth and grace and peace. Hmm. After Jesus does, after this entry, he goes into the temple and he just stands there and he just surveys, he just looks. All that fanfare and he goes to the temple and just walks and looks around. Three days in Jerusalem and every day Jesus is going to reveal a new side to him. What do I mean by that? Well, our, our series is called The Servant King. But on the first day, he reveals himself to be the Messiah King. He reveals himself to be the Messiah King. He is the one we need. He is the one who saves. He is the Savior. He is the hope of the world. The fulfillment of all promises. The next day, he will reveal himself to be something else. And so the next day, day two, we have an interesting set of events here. How many of you guys like sandwiches? Anybody like sandwiches? Mark gives us a sandwich. He does this uh, to help us out. Day two 
is Mark chapter 11, verse 12 to 18. And what happens here is that we have a couple of stories with something in the middle. You know, bread, bread, meat. Now, I, it would be remiss, it would be a failure for me to just teach on the first part. Because you have to take the first part with the second part. And you have to take the third part with it. Jesus wakes up the next morning, jumps out of bed, starts going towards Jerusalem, and he forgets to eat breakfast. You're not you when you're hungry, right? Jesus is hungry. He, he needs something to eat. Some of you got it. Some of you will get that on the way home. It's okay. I really, I, I, guys, I mean, ah. and as he's walking, Towards Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree that has leaves. See, that's very important. The fig tree has leaves. And if you've ever seen a fig tree, you would know that when it has leaves, it has to have fruit. But it doesn't have fruit. You know what it's like? Any of you guys see this commercial? I'm sorry. And I'm saying sorry to people who know what I'm about to say. They'll get it in a minute. You ever see the commercial about McDonald's? Come into McDonald's and get a freshly baked bagel. Listen, they don't make bagels at McDonald's. That is false advertising. There's no way those bagels are made every morning at McDonald's. I don't believe it. That's false advertisement, and that's exactly what the tree shows to Jesus. False advertisement. You see, the leaves were full, but the fruit wasn't there. The leaves said, I have fruit, but the tree actually had no fruit. Jesus saw the tree full of leaves, but it had none of that. Hmm. The tree was advertising something it didn't have. But I can't teach out of this because we got to go to the next part. So Jesus curses the fig tree. Nobody will eat from that fig tree again. And so Jesus continues on into the temple. Let's look at what Jesus says in in Mark 11, verse 17. Where he goes into the temple. And he stands. And yesterday, the day before, he surveyed. And here, he sees what's going on. And he starts to clear the temple. He starts to remove the money changers and all that was going on in there. He starts to throw those things out. He literally cleans the temple. Like literally, he starts tossing tables. I would toss a table in here. However, the last time I did that, I almost hurt my leg. So I'm not going to do that. You see, the place that this was happening was a place for the Gentiles. The Gentiles were allowed, quote-unquote, to pray there. But where they were existed a flea market-like atmosphere. You've all been to a flea market at least once, hopefully. If you've not, never have. Well, then, allow me to explain a story in my life of a time I went to the flea market. I went to the flea market, spent a lot of money on something, got home and realized I wasted all the money I spent. You see, in, in, 
in the temple where the Gentiles were allowed to pray, they, they weren't allowed to bring their own sacrifices. They could only use the sacrifices that were approved by the temple leaders. And so the temple leaders came up with this really good Ponzi scheme idea, sorry. They could approve a certain dove or sheep or lamb, sorry, and you would buy it for an astronomical price because it is a approved sacrifice. But not only that, they only took certain money, right? Like you, you couldn't bring like a Canadian dollar there, obviously. But what they did for your benefit is this. Over on this side, they had someone who would exchange your money for you and give you back money so that you could pay your taxes and buy your sheep. But when you exchange your money, they took like a 10% fee. You ever go to one of those check cashing places? I don't know if you've done this before. But you go into one of these places and you say, hey, I want to cash my check. I'm really desperate. I need the money. And then they say, sure, no problem. We'll give you almost everything except for 25% because we have a service charge. They were robbers, essentially. And the temple leaders approved of all of this. They had the appearance of being righteous. But they weren't really. They had the appearance of being something, but they were not. It's almost like they had leaves, but had no fruit. And that's why it's so important for us to get the word of God in our heart. Because it's not good enough to have the appearance of being a follower of God. We need to produce. And you can only do that if you've got the word in your heart. You can only do that when you're living the way God wants you to live. You can only do that by putting into you what God says in his word. Strangely enough, it's his word that he uses to curse the fig tree. Where the word of God is, nothing can stop it. The promises of God are written down and spoken over your life and they are authoritative and they have power. And that's why you can use the word of God to remind Satan that he is defeated. That's why you can use the word of God to remind yourself that you are a child of the king, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made because the word of God has power. And we see that with the fig tree and as Jesus is clearing out the temples, he says... That his house, his father's house, will be a house of prayer for all nations. Why does he say that? Because it's not just for the Jews. Jesus came to say, listen, you can come to God. You can come to God. I can come to God. There is no restriction on where you come from. I am making you a co-heir with the promises of God because of what I am going to do later on this week. It is his word that has authority. Jesus cleans the temple. And when he says that, he's quoting scripture. He's quoting Isaiah 56. Jesus is showing what God's kingdom will be like all nations under God. All creeds, all tongues, all skin colors. Under one God. 
Jesus is making it known that the way that the temple leaders were doing things would come to an end. A new way was coming, and it would not exclude the Gentiles the way that the temple leaders had done. How do you pray when someone is exchanging money on your left? How do you pray when someone is buying a sacrificial lamb on your right? You can't. The temple leaders didn't care about that. It's all about the money. But Jesus has the power and the authority to be judge. And when we read the fig tree story, and then when we read what happens in the temple, and then you read later on in the Bible in the first few chapters of Romans, and you realize, as we see the next day over time, the fig tree died. And over time, the church did the same thing. It withered up, and they wanted to live worldly, and so God allowed them to live worldly. You can't help but read the word of God and be thankful for his words that are true, his words that are wonderful, his words that are amazing. And so on this day, Jesus is the authoritative king. By his words, he has authority given to him by God. He's the authoritative king. And so the next day, the disciples and Jesus, they're, they're walking towards Jerusalem again because at the end of every day, Jesus would go back to Bethany, town just outside of Jerusalem. And so the next morning, Jesus, he was not hungry this morning. He got food. The next morning, they're walking towards the, the, the same place. And Peter points out that, hey, look, There's the fig tree that you cursed. And a lot of people sometimes miss the fact that it's not the fact that Jesus cursed the fig tree. But it's the fact that Jesus did what he said it would do. That nobody else would ever eat fruit from it again. And Jesus makes a point to make people know to make his disciple know, disciples know specifically that when you have faith in your prayers, you can accomplish the impossible. When you have faith in your prayers, you can accomplish the impossible. Anybody ever have anything impossible in their life? See, I like that story that Jesus uses. Uses. I think I said uses. Is this. It's weird. Weird for a guy. I was on the radio this week. I don't know if I wasn't going to say anything, but I was on the I was on the radio this week, promoting Life One Hundred Three, and also shared a little bit about the building fund. Just tried to do both. The power of God's words, the power of what He says, His authority, the authoritative King. How many of you are thankful for the word of God that has authority? You tap your neighbor lightly, not too hard, and say, neighbor, do you know the authoritative king? You didn't say it convincing enough to that neighbor. Tap your other neighbor and say, other neighbor, 
You got to say it convincingly, guys. Do you know the authoritative king? Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus allowed to come into your temple and inspect? For those of you who said yes, is Jesus allowed to turn over tables? Here's the third question. Do you put those tables back up? Because if he's the authoritative king of your life, then once he flips those tables, they should never be built back up. Anyway, day three, we go back to that. Jesus, he uses the example of a mountain. How about this? How about all of us? We take a trip. I don't, where is Mount Everest actually located? Thank you. How about we all take a trip to Nepal and we try to move Mount Everest? We could get some more people in town. We could take all 45,000 of us. We can move Mount Everest. How many of you guys think we would be actually be able to push Mount Everest? One person has faith in, in our strength. One person. Because it is humanly impossible to move a mountain. And that's why God uses that because he knows, Jesus uses that. Because he knows it's humanly impossible. However, when your faith is strong, it's not about human abilities. It's about God's abilities. And God has all ability. He is the creator of the mountain. So if your faith is strong and you speak to the mountain, it'll move from here here to there. That's why Jesus uses that example. With God, there is no limit Jesus is using that portion of scripture to teach us about faith. When we put our full trust in Yahweh, when we put our full trust in God, our faith grows stronger. He is the source of everything. Our fruit can grow when we put our full trust in God, when he is our source. And he is the only source of change for the better. And so on his way into Jerusalem, Jesus Teaches and on so day three we are in chapter eleven verse twenty all the way to the end. I'm doing pretty good on time, guys. I just want to point this out to you guys. I was planning to be done. I'm not going to tell you the time I was planning to be done. However, I'm looking at the clock. I'm doing pretty good this morning. I might take an extra twenty twenty five minutes. All the people said. Oh, I really thought I was going to get an amen from that. All right, all right. Thank you, thank you. All right, someone said preach it. Black church now. I'm just kidding. Okay. (laughs) All right, hold on. Jesus returns to the temple. Jesus is a bad man, guys. You guys got to understand this. Yesterday, he clears out the temple, and the next day, he goes back again. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine doing something just that would take everybody off, and the next day, you come back, and you're right there again? But when you're the authoritative king, you can do whatever you want. And he returns to the temple, and the leaders are not happy at all. They were ready to kill Jesus right there, but they couldn't because everybody was watching. So they tried to discredit Jesus. The first thing they tried to do is they went for their authority. First, they went for their authority, for Jesus' authority. They asked him about his authority. 
And then he counters it by asking about John the Baptist's authority. And Jesus knows that if they say that John the Baptist was from God and John the Baptist said that Jesus was from God, well then, someone's mistaken here. Here's what it says in Mark 11, verse 28. It says, they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? And Jesus, like a champion boxer, says, all right, here's a, here's a counterpunch. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Answer me. Jesus, like Jesus is now, he's gangster now. He's demand, like, yo. He's demanding answers because he can. Essentially, what Jesus asked them was, if they believed that God was behind John's ministry, was, behind, was that John's ministry was from heaven, and John had taught that God was behind Jesus' ministry, and if the critics believed that God was behind John's ministry, they would have to agree that God was behind Jesus' ministry. Let me show you what the next slide says, or the next portion of scripture it says they finally replied after they deliberated for a moment we don't know that's a great answer and jesus responded then i won't tell you by what authority i do these things you see the answer i don't know that doesn't cut it jesus said if you answer this question i'll answer your question they thought and they they thought and they thought and this is the best they could come up with But clearly, what's happening behind the scenes is they've rejected both John and Jesus as God's authorized prophets. Jesus had already answered their question in a veiled way by claiming that his authority was the same as John's. He doesn't do a sidestep. He does this to show that he is above them. He's showing them that he is the authority. And so we have a series of events. And they'll, they'll show up on the screen in a moment. Uh, we have a series of events on the rest of this day. Where Jesus is in the temple. And time after time, someone comes up to him and tries to, to you know, question his authority. There are six stories. There's the parable of the wicked farmer talks about taxes for Caesar, discussion about the resurrection, the most important commandment, whose son is the Messiah, and the widow's offering. So uh, six stories in seven minutes, guys. You think this can be done? Someone, <laughs> did someone just say, I hope so? I thought I heard that. Out of those six stories, four times the religious leaders are there. Three times they ask him a question. First, the the Pharisees and the Herodians, they attempt to uh, unmask Jesus as an an imposter, as as a fraud, as someone uh, who is not real. And they do this when they ask him about paying taxes to a foreign king. Uh, But Jesus counters them. You see, because the temple leaders who were in charge of the money-changing operation that Jesus had effectively shut down, they liked the money that they were getting. And they ask him, who do we pay taxes to? And Jesus says, well, whose image is on the coin? Oh, look, it's Caesar's. So you pay to Caesar what is his. 
and everything that's marked with God's image should be given to God. Does anybody know what's marked with God's image? Tap your neighbor again. Say, neighbor, I'm sorry to be a bother. You are marked with God's image. Everything you own is marked with God's image. Because the whole earth is God's. And so you give to God what is God's. And yeah, you can give Caesar his money. Man, who cares? But give to God what is God's. They tried to trap him with that. And Jesus is like, okay, guys, let's try, try something else. This is interesting. This small story is interesting. In light of our, our current times, what Jesus sort of does here is he separates church and state. God is not the government. He is not the government. That's man. Man wants to have all that power and, and be leaders of this and leaders of that. God is, is God. He's above the government. And what he's really doing is he's making it known because in those times, Roman emperors had a, a, a tendency to claim that they are God, but they are not. Then the, the Sadducees, they attempt to discredit all possibility of a spiritual kingdom. They ask about Levite marriage and the resurrected state, and they try to discredit that there will be a spiritual kingdom. Jesus counters that and saying in the new heaven, all these human terms, they'll cease to exist and we'll all be one under God. Jesus then establishes how he is both the son of God and the son of David. He's David's offspring, but he is also David's father. It is only through the virgin birth that Jesus is able to possess the dual nature that allows him to be both God and man I want to go to the last story which is the widow's sacrifice Jesus is sitting there and he observes the widow giving and he turns to the disciples and he tells them that, that she has made a bigger contribution than everybody else. How could this be? Everybody else is bringing lots of money. They're bringing lots of things. And she just brings in these, these, these two small coins. How could that be? What Jesus is saying there is it's not about what the giver gives. It's about the cost to the giver. And this is why I close with this story. Because Jesus is talking about this widow who gives everything cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. She makes a sacrifice cheerfully. And when I think about that, and here we are on Palm Sunday, and when I look ahead to Good Friday, I can't help but think, that Jesus is going to make a sacrifice, a big sacrifice. And he's going to do it willingly. And when I think about that, and I think about the fact that he knew this when he entered into Jerusalem 
the first day. He knew this when he entered into the world. He knew that everything was leading him to make a sacrifice. In the back of his mind, he knows he's going to die. In fact, he is in the will of God and he's serving his purpose. And so he reveals himself once again to be the servant king. In the middle of God's will, serving the plan that was marked out for him. He's right where God wants him to be. Teaching the people and the disciples, riling up the religious leaders. Because this is all God's plan. So this morning I ask you, do you know God's plan for your life? Jesus is going to Calvary. He will die. But he won't stay there. He is our servant king. And when he goes to Calvary, he dies. And that makes him our savior king. But he won't stay dead. And that makes him the resurrected and victorious king. And yes, he, he went up to heaven. He will come back. And he, will be, and he is our soon coming king. And when Jesus comes back, he won't be riding on a donkey. He'll be riding on a white horse of victory. What a savior. What a king. I don't know if you know him yet. There's no time like the present. There's no time like today to start to get to know this servant king, this savior king, our soon coming king. There's no time like this moment right here. We read the scriptures and we see all that he does. We read the scriptures and see all that he does for us. The Bible says he, he, he left to go prepare a place for us and he's coming back. We'll meet up with all those who have gone ahead. And we'll be serving the servant king who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is a great father. He is the one who is to come. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy. I don't know where you are in your life this morning. I don't know what, what ails you. I don't know what, what is bothering you. But this morning, I want you to know that there is authority in the word of God. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I want to ask two questions. The first is, for those who are here and you might be sort of doubting God, you might be not sure if God is real. I would ask that you think to yourself for a moment, what do I have to lose 
if God is real? What will I lose if I follow Jesus? You might lose some friends, but you'll gain eternity. You might lose a few parties, but you'll gain a kingdom. If that's you this morning and you're here and you say, Pastor Stefan, I, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. Would you repeat this prayer? We'll all repeat this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on Calvary for me. I know I'm a sinner. And I know that you're a savior. So would you forgive me of all my sins and come into my heart today. I make you king over my life from this day forward. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, you need to know there are angels in heaven rejoicing. But I have a second prayer request call for some of us in here. And and that's some of us who have sort of fallen away, sort of, sort of forgotten where we started, forgotten who Jesus is, either by actions or whatever we've done in our lives. If that's you, or if you know someone and you want to lift your hand or just pray this prayer on someone's behalf, would you, you, you pray this prayer? Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you don't give up on us. God, I put you back on the throne of my life. I put your authority back to where it belongs. Jesus, be the king of my life. In your name I pray. Amen.